You know, if I say I'm thirsty, then what that means is I have a lot of thirst, right? If, if I say uh, the new hot dogs at the, at the new hot dog joint over here are tasty, well, then that means they have a lot of taste, right? If, if I say something is messy, well, then it's got a lot of mess. If I say something is sappy, well, then that's the Hallmark Channel. You understand when I'm, where, where this is going. So when I say something is happy, that means it's got a lot of hap. Now, that's not a word we ever use in any other way unless it's a part of a bigger word. But that word hap basically means luck. Think about the other words that we use with that word in it. We say, uh, well, it, it, things happen. Or we'll say that something we weren't planning was a happenstance, right? We're not sure if it's going to work or not, so we say perhaps, right? Uh, hap basically means luck. And so I'm happy when I have a lot of luck. A, a lot of good things are happening that make me happy. So happiness is dependent upon the happenings around me. Joy, however, is something much deeper, much more real, and it's something that I can choose. Joy is that sense of well-being regardless of my circumstances. Regardless of what's happening, I can choose to be joyful. And that is the, the primary point, the primary purpose, the theme, if you will, of the book of Philippians. I want us to begin a journey together. We're going to take some time, and we're just going to go through the book of Philippians together, verse by verse by verse by verse. And as we go through it, we're going to hear over and again this common theme that runs throughout the book, the theme of choosing joy. And one of the things that makes that theme so powerful in this book is the circumstances, if you will, of the writing of the book in the first place. When Paul wrote the book of Philippians, it was a letter that he was writing to his friends in Philippi. Well, why did he write them a letter? Why didn't he just go see them? Because he was in jail at the time. He couldn't go see them. He was in a dark, damp Roman prison cell. Well, how did he wind up there? Well, going to Rome was, had always been on his bucket list. He always wanted to get to go to Rome. However, he always thought that he would eventually get to go to Rome as a preacher. Instead, he wound up going to Rome as a prisoner. After he conducted his missionary journeys and he planted churches all over and did all kinds of wonderful things, getting the gospel started, he, he wound up uh, being called to Jerusalem. And when he arrived at Jerusalem, he was uh, unjustly accused, unfairly tried. And so he said, I, as a Roman soldier, I appeal to Caesar. And so in Jerusalem, they said, well, if you appeal to Caesar, then why don't you just go to Caesar 
and make your appeal to him personally. And after a long time and a very long, um, epic kind of journey adventure, Paul finally arrived in Rome. They put him in chains. They put him in jail where he waited his time to see Caesar. And it is in that jail cell that he writes a letter full of joy. That's just amazing to me. While he's waiting for that next stale piece of bread, while, while he is chained to the floor in some way, not able to move, not able to get out. You and I in, that, in a similar circumstance perhaps would give up. We'd certainly feel sorry for ourselves. We would expect our friends at Philippi to be concerned about us. But Paul instead had them on his mind and on his heart. And he wrote to them about choosing joy. You'll see that this, this letter is not really that long. It's only four chapters, and those chapters are all relatively small. Each chapter has 20, 30 verses, give or take, something like that. And in that small letter, there are at least 15 times that Paul uses the noun joy or the verb rejoice. He, it is the theme that carries the letter. So as we go through the book, we'll discover that joy is not based on the happenings around us, but joy is based on how we relate to Jesus himself. Well, I'm eager to get started, so let's just jump right into it on chapter 1 at verse 1 of the book of Philippians. We see that Paul begins talking about the servants, the saints, and the salutation. There are the servants, the saints, and a salutation. First, the servants. The, the book begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And we've talked before many times about how in, uh, in, in biblical times when they wrote a letter, they did it backwards compared to the way we do it. When you and I write a letter, we start at the top the, addressing who the letter's to. You know, dear John and Yes, every letter I ever got was a Dear John letter, but that's a different story. Dear John, here's the letter, and then down at the bottom, your friend so-and-so. Now, the reason that's kind of goofy is because when we get a letter, we have to skim down to the bottom to see who wrote it for the whole thing to make sense. Well, they did it backwards and got it started off just right. So the way they did it is more like when we get an email today. When you get an email, you know who it's from before you know what it says. That's the way letters should work as well. And so they said this letter is from Paul and Timothy. Now, Timothy was most likely uh, with Paul as a, as a uh, uh, secretary kind of a person. Paul most likely spoke to Timothy and told Timothy what to write, and then Timothy was responsible for writing that out and making sure that that letter got delivered to the appropriate people. It was, a, it was a, 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 an important job for Timothy, and it was appropriate because, as you remember, Paul had uh, uh, kind of taken Timothy under his wing. 
there's even a good chance that it was because of Paul's ministry that Timothy became a Christian. We can't prove that, but it is very likely. And uh, whether that is the truth or not, we do know for certain that Paul was discipling Timothy. He was bringing him along. Paul was the mentor, and he was teaching Timothy the things of ministry. And so they are together as partners here, Paul and Timothy. But notice how they describe themselves, how the, the word they choose to describe their lives is not disciples, it's not ministers, it's not pastors or preachers. Notice they said Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And they, were, they used that beautiful word doulos. Doulos is the word that means slave. And, and so there were times in which a slave, a doulos, would say to his master, you've been such a good master, uh, I, I have grown to love you, and I would prefer to, to stay with you. I mean, his only other option would be go find some other master somewhere. And, and so he would instead say to his master, even though it's time for me to be set free, I would like to just stay your slave for the rest of my life. And they would actually go out and, and get an awl or uh, and, and, and a nail or something and uh, pierce the ear of that servant. And that pierced ear would then say to everyone, I have committed my life to serving my master. He is the doulos, the servant or slave. And so here is Paul and Timothy saying, we are the slaves of Christ Jesus. We have committed our lives to being submissive and obedient to Jesus Christ for the rest of our lives. That's how they define themselves. And in so doing, they earned the right of our, uh, uh, to be heard. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. But then they, they move on to talk about the saints. As they address it then, it's from Paul and Timothy. Well, who's it to? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, understand when he says this letter is written to the saints, in our scriptures, the word saint means holy ones, and you are made holy by trusting in Christ and being forgiven of sin. Therefore, the word saints is intended for all believers. All Christians have been made holy as they stand before God, not on their own merit, but because of what Jesus has done for them in forgiving their sins. That's the way Paul uses the word here. This is to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. It always kind of strikes me as funny that in, in that address, he says, this is to the saints, the godly ones, the holy ones, and the pastors and deacons. You know, the, the saints in Christ with the overseers and deacons. Obviously, he doesn't mean to separate them into two classes. He is just acknowledging and showing respect to the pastors and deacons in the church. But it's written from the servants to the saints, and then this salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins most, if not all, of his letters with that phrase, grace and peace to you. It is not only a way to begin a letter like we would, we would start again, dear John. It is instead his sincere prayer to those who receive the letter. I'm praying that you would experience God's grace and find real peace. 
and that blessing is carried with the letter, then that they find that grace and peace. So we have the, the servants, the saints, and the salutations. And then we get into the body, if you will, of the letter, the, the heart of the letter. And this is where I want us to, uh, to really dig in this morning, starting at verse 3, as we find three essentials to working together. I want us to look at it in terms of that, that, that phrase that we heard so often, especially lately, we're all in this together. How many times have you heard somebody uh, making a, a, a commercial, usually local commercials, I know this pandemic is a difficult time, but we're all in this together. We've heard celebrities come out and say, hey, hang in there, we're all in it. No, you're, we're not in this together. You live in a big fancy mansion. I'm over here. No, we're not together. Let's, let's just be honest. But when Paul writes this letter from a prison in Rome, socially distanced from the people he loves, he is able to say with all sincerity, we are in this together. And as he does, he shows us what ministry in the church looks like. That's what I want us to really spend some time thinking together about this morning. We are in this together. And that begins by being together in fellowship. Beginning at verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. My remembrance of you, that means that they are on his mind. He's thinking about them. And as he thinks about them, he thanks God for them. They come to his mind and he realizes, man, these are good folks and I have a lot to be grateful for. He thinks about them and then he thanks God for them. I thank my God at every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. In every prayer of mine, he prays for them all, making his prayer with joy. He is glad. Look at that joy. He's praying in joy. Remember, this is the same guy who was thrown in prison in Philippi. Earlier on, he was thrown in prison in Philippi. And while he was there, remember what happened? It was in that dark midnight hour, and he starts singing praises to God from the jail cell. And as he's singing praises to God, the doors open up, and the jailer says, oh my goodness, I'm going to be killed now that, that the doors are open. And he, Paul said, no, we're not going anywhere. We're not running away. We're here. We're singing praises. Why don't you just kind of sing along with us? And the jailer got saved, and he went home, and his family got saved. Paul understands that joy is not dependent upon the circumstances. Even in jail, he finds joy. And now in this Roman prison cell, he again finds joy as he prays for the people in Philippi. So in verse 4, in verse 3, we learn that he's on their uh, that they are on his mind. In verse 4, since they came to mind, he prays for them. And notice he says, uh, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So that tells us that he was indeed a southern fellow because he prayed for you all. So, so he, 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 as a good southern boy, he prays for you all. Then look in verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day 
until now. He says, the reason that, that you come to mind and I'm grateful for you, the reason for that I pray for you in joy, the reason for that is because from the first day until now, we have been connected. We have this fellowship together. And as he talked about that fellowship that he enjoyed with them, he uses uh, that great concept of koinonia, although he didn't use the word in this particular verse, it was, he was talking about the same concept of that fellowship, which means to have in common. It means to share life. You know those sequoia trees grow really tall? You've seen, those, you've seen pictures of those. Some of them, have you, have, you've even seen the real trees yourselves. They grow 200 to 300 feet tall. Huge, massive things. The average at the trunk, at the base of those trees, average 40 feet in diameter. Every once in a while, some of those can get up to be 100 feet in diameter. But the average is 40, 200 to 300 feet high. What's amazing about those huge trees is that their root system stays really pretty shallow at the most, maybe 20 feet deep. You say, well, how can a tree that huge, that big around and that tall, how can it, how can it have such a small, shallow root system and stay up? And it's because sequoia trees never grow alone. They, 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 they grow in groves. And so those roots are shallow, but they spread out. And as they spread out, they intertwine with the roots of the other sequoias that are close by. And as those roots intertwine with one another, then when the strong winds come, they hold each other up. This church, by the way, I want to make sure and point it out because I'm not sure that we always recognize the blessings that we have, but this church is blessed in that koinonia. We are blessed in the fellowship that we have. And we want to make sure we don't take that for granted. Our roots intertwine. And because of that, when the strong winds come, we hold each other up. So Paul writes to them about the fact that you've been with me from the beginning until now. And he means that in quite a literal way because he was the one who took the gospel to that area. Remember, he wanted to go to what he called Asia, we call Turkey. He wanted to go to Asia and, and spend his time there, but he just couldn't get there. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. And he winds up instead being called through a vision to, to Macedonia. And as he goes to Macedonia, in essence, what he does is take the gospel to Europe. And one of the first places he winds up is the place named after Philip the Macedon. He winds up at Philippi, shares with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, plants a church, and from that day until this day now that he's in Rome, he says, we've been together. We've been in this work together as a fellowship. And so one of the essentials in working together is being together in fellowship. Another essential in working together is that we are together in encouragement. Together in encouragement. Look at verse 6. He says to these people that he loves so much, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, he said, I know that God is still working on you. He's still at it. And what a word of encouragement. He says, I know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect either, but we're getting there because God is working on us. It's so easy for us to complain. It's a challenge for us to learn the art of encouragement. Paul says, I know you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. But I also know this, God is still working on you. You remember that song? He's still working on me. He's still working on me to make me what I want to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. I want to ask you a question. In your attic at home, in your garage, in that shed out back, How many unfinished projects are there? Anybody in the room got any unfinished projects? Good for you. (laughs) Chances are that in every attic, in every garage, in every shed, there's something that we started and just never got around to finishing. Isn't it good to know that none of us None of us is an unfinished project in God's garage because he's still working. We're not done yet, but we're not forgotten and set aside either. He is still actively working to make us who he wants us to be. Ephesians 2 and 10 puts it this way, for we are his workmanship, his workmanship. He's creating something and we're it. He's in the process. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's that's amazing. We're his workmanship, and the reason that he's working on us is so that we can do good works. He's working on us so that we can serve him. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Instead of being discouraged for himself, although he had every right to be, Paul chose joy. And instead of being discouraged for himself, he encouraged his friends. God is still at work. I remember how much we used to love to watch Ashley run at track meets. I won't be dishonest and tell you I enjoyed the track meets that much, but I love to watch my kid run at the track meets. Track meets are fine. They just last 12 hours, and it takes all day. You know, and my kid ran in the first event and the last event, so we had to go at the beginning and wait the whole time for the last event. It was fun, though. We loved watching her run, but we also loved watching something else that happened quite often when... West kids were in track meets. And that is that in the race, as the athletes are running around the track, 
one of our coaches would stay in the infield where he's supposed to be, but while the kid is running around the track, our coach is running and hopping and jumping all around down in the infield, encouraging that runner as he comes around the track. It was almost as fun watching that coach as it was watching some of the kids win. And what was he doing? He was encouraging. You're, you're going to do it. You got it. You can do this. It is that encouragement that allows us the, the opportunity and the courage. That's what encourage means, to put courage in. Encouraging encourages us to fulfill our potential, to make the most of our opportunities. That's what it means to work together as a church. We are together in fellowship and we are together in encouragement. One of the very common verses that you and I grew up hearing in Hebrews 10, we grew up hearing the verse to make sure that we knew we were supposed to go to church. But look at that verse in context. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider how to, how, to, how to jump and hop and scream and yell and run to encourage the track runners on the track. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, so that verse that says, let us not neglect meeting together. It's really not just about the fact that you're supposed to show up for church. You're supposed to show up so that you can encourage one another. That's the essence of the verse there. We work together as we are together in encouragement. We need each other. And so we're together in fellowship as our roots intertwine and we're able to hold one another up. We work together in encouragement as we are uh, uh, prodding each other along and we're, we're stirring each other up to love and good works. And then we are together in ministry. We're together in ministry. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my Heart. At first he was on, they were on his mind. Now they are in his heart. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He said, the reason I have such strong feelings for you, the reason you're in my heart is that we're in this together. Even though I'm in prison, even though you are able to share the gospel, we're socially distanced, but we're spiritually connected. And that is the essence of what it looks like to choose joy, especially in a time like this. And you see, it's one thing to have someone on your mind. It's another to have them in your heart. And he said, I'm not only thinking about you, I've got you in my heart because we are partakers together. Verse, verse 8 then, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
He says, I love you. And because I love you, you're on my mind, you're in my heart, and we are together in ministry. Folks, that's the way the church works. It was never intended for us to see church as another consumer opportunity where there are hired people who are supposed to serve and entertain and make us feel good. Church has always been from the beginning a corporate experience where we all do ministry together. The Bible says that the pastor's job is to equip the saints for doing the ministry. Church is, is, is found when we are all in this together, together in ministry. In 1957, the First Brethren Church of Sarasota, Florida, had a groundbreaking service for their new facility. Instead of bringing a few shovels for a few important people sitting on committees, they brought an old one-horse plow. You know how we usually do. We set the important people up there in those folding chairs, and they get the gold shovels, and, and they count to three, and then they kind of dig a couple of inches, and it's all ceremony. Well, in this case, instead, they brought that one-horse plow out, and recalling the words of Jesus to take my yoke upon you, they began by hitching up a couple of laymen to pull that plow. The problem is it didn't budge. So they added the building committee and still it refused to move. Other church officers were added and then the teachers, but the plow refused to cut into the soil. Finally, every member of the congregation took hold of the rope and with every member pulling together, the plow broke the ground. That is the picture of a church at work together in ministry. Every believer in the church has a role to play. Someone has said that there are a lot of Christians who don't do anything, but there are no Christians who have nothing to do. We're all called to serve in some way. We're all called to do ministry together. 